If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What can looking at the lives of disabled people in the Tudor period tell us about the era more generally? Well, plenty, according to the historian Philippa Vincent Connolly. In her book, Disability and the Tudors, Philippa uncovers the often overlooked stories of disabled figures to reveal a complex picture of attitudes towards disability in the period. I spoke to her to find out more. What first interested you in the subject of disability in the Tudor era? So there's two reasons why I'm into both these topics. One, when I was born, I was born very early, 26 weeks. And because of that, I weighed two pounds, two ounces, which meant that I was a miracle baby, shouldn't have survived. And this was in 1970, so we didn't have all the medical intervention that we have now. And I ended up being diagnosed with cerebral palsy. When I was little, um, my grandparents were very much into history. And when my mum used to work at the weekend, she'd take myself and my cousins around to all these places to visit, heritage sites. And we'd go around these big stately homes like Wilton House, like Blenheim, like Bremor, Hever, all these places... And I'd look at all these portraits of these wonderful people in these amazing clothes and all this beautiful furniture and Chippendale and all that kind of thing. And I thought, well, there's nobody there that represents me. 
as a disabled person. So I started working in a school as a teaching assistant. And at the same time, I'd signed up to do a distance learning history degree with the Open University. So I was doing the dual things at the, the same time. And through the sort of discrimination I faced in my life because of my cerebral palsy, and because I find that with children, it's ignorance that causes the discrimination from them and the comments and the looks and, and everything. And, and I was really interested in the history side. And, and when um, the history teacher was teaching us about the Tudors, they talk about the vagabonds and the people pretending to be disabled. But there was no history about disability that was given out in schools. I then started doing um, an MA in history once I'd done my teacher training and I started looking into disability history and I'd been writing a historical fantasy series on Anne Boleyn about a 21st century student who manages to time travel back to the Tudor period and how she interacts with the Boleyn family. I had this light bulb moment and I, I emailed a publisher and said, look, you know, would you be interested in me doing anything on disability history? Not thinking that they'd get back to me and say, oh, yeah, we'd really like to look at this. And initially, my whole plan was to write one big book about the history of disability. And they said, that's just too much. You can't do that. Pin it down to one particular period in history that you want to look at. And so the obvious choice for me was sort of disability and the Tudors. So you obviously have a a hugely personal connection to this history. You mentioned earlier that disabled people are missing often from the the narratives that were told about history and how history is shared in schools and in public forums. But where can we uncover disabled people in the historical record, especially in the Tudor times? What information do we have available about them? I mean, everybody's heard of Will Summer, I think. In the family portrait of Henry VIII, which hangs in the um, haunted gallery next to the entrance to the Chapel Royal at Hampton Court, Um, that was painted in 1545. It's got Henry VIII in the centre with Jane Seymour and his children around him. But on either side of the painting, there's these two particular characters that nobody ever particularly takes much notice of. But they're really important because it is Will Summer, who was considered to have a learning disability, And he was a companion to Henry VIII. Let's not talk about jesters because he wasn't a jester. And then on the other side of the painting is a lady in an archway as well. And her name was Jane Full. We don't know much about her. We don't know when she was born, how she came to court. But we know from the household accounts that Anne Boleyn actually ordered her clothes on a regular basis And we know that when Anne Boleyn was going to her coronation, that Jane Fall was in that procession. And she actually complained to the Lord Mayor of London at the time, why aren't the crowd shouting, God save the Queen? Why aren't they celebrating? You know, why don't they take their hats off? Have you got scurvy? What's wrong with you kind of thing? You know, she got really annoyed and um, angry about it and was saying, you know, what they should be shouting and celebrating. And and to me, that shows um, a distinct relationship between 
Jane Fulwell and her mistress, the Queen, that they that she too was like a companion to Will. When you say they were they were companions to the King and Queen, what do we know about that role and that relationship that they forged? In the accounts, in the household accounts and in Henry VIII's letters and papers, there's records showing that these two people were cared for in terms of their clothes were bought for them, Will Summers had leather work for his horse bought for him, all sorts of things. Um, Jane Fall later on in her life, Catherine Parr bought Jane a flock of geese to herd around the gardens at Hampton Court um, to keep her occupied, to give her something to do. And these people, it shows, because their clothing was bought for them and ordered for them, these people didn't have um, any sort of authority over their own money or their own care because maybe they couldn't because of their learning disabilities. And they had what we, we'd call carers today, which who were called keepers. So they had keepers who were paid money to look after the likes of Jane Fool and Will Summer. So obviously Jane Fool and Will Summer were in a fairly unique position um, because they were attached to the royal court. But what do we know about attitudes to disability in Tudor society more generally? What would happen is that disabled people were expected to be looked after by their families initially. If they were unable to for whatever reason or they didn't have family for some reason, then monasteries that weren't closed would step in or guilds would step in and do charity work to support these people. They might try and get them to help work the land or do a trade or something like basket weaving or you know, washing or whatever, basic sort of things that they could possibly do. And then because of the religious ideas that you had to do good works and it was all about um, humanism and looking after people, you'd have, say, more well-off middle-class people and nobility who would take the disabled in if monasteries didn't do it or families didn't do it. And they'd actually have them within their households like a member of the family. They'd educate them, they'd dress them, they'd look after them, feed them, all those kinds of things. For example, with Thomas More, he had a gentleman called Henry Patterson who lived with him. And in the family portrait of Thomas More, you can see Henry Patterson right in the middle of the painting in a yellow gown. And he looks very much like Henry VIII, funnily enough. Um, And they had a really, really good relationship where Thomas More would take him on diplomatic missions abroad to Europe. He would also have in-depth conversations with Henry Patterson about the religious aspects and political aspects of the court. And it was known that Henry Patterson actually did sort of advise Thomas More to sign the Oath of Supremacy and say, look, you know, just just do it, get on with it, save your life sort of thing. Because they had this distinct learning disability, they were seen as being closer to God. Because they were suffering already on earth, they were suffering like a purgatory on earth already, people considered that to be quite an honouring thing to have to go through in terms of their religion. And, you know, if you're a Christian, you know that God will speak to people with his Holy Spirit. And so they thought that 
these natural fools, these disabled people with learning disabilities had like a direct line to God, if you like, and that God would use them as a conduit to speak truth to people. And because they had no agenda, they had no sort of way of wanting political power or to improve themselves or financially or materialistically, um, there was no agenda there. So they just spoke out these truths and said to people exactly what they thought. And this is why they were so cherished by Tudor nobility, by the Tudor court. And I think that's why Henry enjoyed the company of Will Summers so much and preferred him over a lot of his courtiers and his privy staff because they could just talk about anything and it didn't matter. There was only one time, I think, that Will Summers actually said a few things out of turn, probably. I think it was about Anne Boleyn. And um, Henry VIII did go and make him sleep in a barn with dogs in the hay one night. But at least he didn't end up in the tower, you know? So that's that's quite quite an insight. But, but generally speaking, these relationships which were like a, a best friend kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. if... If Henry didn't want to speak to any other courtiers, oh, let's get Will Summers in, I'll speak to him, you know, he'll know what to say to me sort of thing. You know, and like when Jane Seymour died after having Prince Edward, um, Henry shut himself away for weeks and weeks and Will Summers was the only one that was allowed in to see Henry. So that says a lot about the relationship, doesn't it? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This, I think, the way that they cared for disabled people and supported them shows a completely different side of the dynasty. And it's really important because not only did Henry VIII have natural falls, disabled people living with him, Henry VII did as well. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply We've spoken mainly about figures who we think, from looking at the historical record, had learning disabilities. But what about physical disabilities? Um, What were the views around those? Again, it would be the same in terms of charity. When the dissolution of the monasteries took place in the mid-1530s, you had Bedlam Hospital that had been around from the medieval period as the main sort of hospital which did support people with physical and mental disabilities. You had specific almshouses that started to spring up around on the edge of towns, which would take in 
the elderly, the sick, the disabled. There were specific hospitals for people suffering with leprosy, for example. So there was starting to form a kind of a welfare state and a bit of an N- a Tudor NHS, if you like. But it was all based on charitable giving and, you know, supporting people if they initially didn't have that support in their own communities. But of course, the medical knowledge was still based on the four humours. So they didn't really understand why people were born with a disability in the first place. And you had this other juxtaposition of if a child was born with a severe deformity or problem, one, they would probably not have survived very long. But if they did then they were considered there was something wrong with the parents. The parents must have sinned really badly or seen something inappropriate they they shouldn't have done, which must have affected the baby in the womb or the mother must have been involved in satanic worship of some kind or witchcraft. So it was really strange because you had that kind of view and attitude towards the disabled on the one hand, being the other attitude of them being cherished and honoured and closer to God. So it was a very strange way of looking at it. Recently, with my um, PhD, I've found some sources. For example, there was a group of um, women spinners up in Norwich who are detailed in the Norwich census who were deaf. But because they were spinners and because they were working... They were self-sufficient. They were unmarried. Men didn't like it because these women were independent. And on top of that, the fact that they had, you know, a, a disability like deafness, people didn't like them being independent. They wanted, They thought they should have been cared for. So that was really quite surprising. So I think it varied depending on the network of help and support there was out there. But a lot of uh, philanthropy happened around the disabled and the sick and the elderly. And it's like that old adage when you think about the Victorians, for example, they'd always have their elderly relatives living with them. And I think that was very similar for for the Tudors. You stayed in that family unit as far as you possibly could and all worked together to work on a farm or work on the land. And they would probably involve them in all all of that as far as people could be involved you know, depending on their limitations. You mentioned that physicians and medical figures struggled to understand why someone might be disabled. But were there any attempts in the Tudor period to deal with disabilities in a medical sense? So either to alleviate pain, perhaps, or any attempts to, in in quote marks, cure disabled people? To be honest, not that I've actually come across. Mm -hmm. The records are so sparse in terms of what you can find on on disability in this particular period so because the Tudors thought thought that disability was a normal everyday occurrence they didn't see it see it as significant enough to record all of it as a historian obviously there were there were no names for syndromes or specific conditions used in the Tudor period as a historian is that frustrating because you're never going to be quite sure what was going on with people or to you, does it not really matter? I would say with history in any period, unless you were there at the time to witness what was going on, it's always best guess. Nobody can say 100% 
anything was absolutely right unless there is a written record that you can decipher. But that's the fascinating thing about history, isn't it? And I think that the uh, Tudors described disability literally with what they saw. So if you couldn't walk properly, you were a cripple or you were lame. If you had some sort of mental disorder or you had schizophrenia or you were hysterical, then you were put in the mad category. If you had an intellectual disability or a learning disability of any kind, you were a natural fool. And that's, that's literally how they categorised it. Yes, all those syndromes that exist now obviously existed then, but the Tudors didn't have the medical knowledge to be able to diagnose them and they didn't label them. We put everybody into a box now. And I hate that. I hate labelling everybody. We're all human beings with the same kinds of emotions and feelings and wants and needs and desires. I think you've revealed a really interesting picture that might surprise a few people that there was this aspect of support and compassion um, shown towards disabled people in Tudor times. Because I think a a lot of people won't be expecting that that's the story they were going to hear in this podcast. What do you think that looking at the history of disabled people can reveal about the Tudor mindset and and the Tudor era more generally? Well, we always just tend to look at the brutality of it with the executions and the battles and the pilgrimage of grace and all the dissolution of the monasteries and Cromwell going around destroying all of that and Henry just becoming more powerful financially and, you know, the drama of the six wives. But this, I think, the way that they cared for disabled people and supported them shows a completely different side of the dynasty. And it's really important because not only did Henry VIII have natural falls, disabled people living with him, Henry VII did as well. And Wolsey did as well. For example, Wolsey had a natural fall with a disability living with him. And when he fell from grace and gave Henry VIII Hampton Court Palace, he also gave Henry Patch, his natural fall, as a present and Patch didn't actually want to go to the king he was dragged away by guards kicking and screaming back to to Henry VIII and didn't want to leave Wolsey so you know relationships were built up with these people that were really important that story you just shared about Wolsey and Patch is really interesting because it suggests to me that Maybe some of these figures, they were well cared for, uh, they were treated with compassion, but maybe they weren't granted much agency. Do you think that that's fair? Yeah, I think I think that is fair. I think because they were cared for and had keepers, they had people to help them with the everyday activities in life. For example, there are records of uh, Jane Fool having her head shaved on a regular basis by Princess Mary, who eventually came, became Mary I. We don't know whether that's because it was an attempt to be more hygienic, to help prevent her getting hair lice, for example, or whether it was a, a religious thing to make her feel more closer to God, like when the monks would shave their their hair for example well of course of course this is part of a a much bigger story as you've revealed here the story of disability history what do you think about the representation of disabled people in popular history generally (laughs) well there isn't any (laughs) (laughs) 
we always talk about we always talk about the Paralympians, but they always seem to make normal disabled people you know feel a bit inferior because they come across as being these superhuman beings and i'm sorry not every disabled person can be like that you know we have got limitations but at the same time i think personally speaking i think we should have a lot more representation disability needs to be seen as a normal part of our everyday life like the tudors thought it was we've done a lot on black history and People are looking more at LGBT community history, but disability history is always the poor relation. And we're always left last because people see it as a very taboo topic. And I have no idea why. And we should have airtime to tell our stories, to show what we can actually achieve, to make a difference, to encourage other disabled people. And that's my whole point of also doing the history is so that the general public and history students and historians will view disabled people from a completely different perspective because it's about time. That was Philippa Vincent Connolly. Her book, Disability and the Tudors, All the King's Fools, is available now, published by Pen and Sword. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.